0: everyone you're listening to bionic bug podcast with fiction author and national security expert natasha Bajima. join me as i discuss the latest news about emerging technology read chapters from bionic bug and explore the real life technologies featured in my novel we'll discuss where fiction meets reality in the future Hey everyone, welcome back to Bionic Bug Podcast. You are listening to episode number 42. This is your host, Natasha Bajma, fiction author, futurist, and national security expert. I'm recording this episode on January 26, 2019. I am sad to say that this is my final episode of the Bionic Bug Podcast. This is somewhat bittersweet because I've grown fond of sharing my thoughts about tech news with you. If you've been listening from the beginning, thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you want to keep listening to me, I'll be launching a new podcast in March called The Authors of Mass Destruction Podcast. I'll talk tech and weapons of mass destruction, but we'll take a slightly different approach. I'm planning to focus on helping authors write great stories about national security issues while getting the technical details right. Tune in for interviews with leading experts on weapons of mass destruction and emerging technologies, Author interviews, technical modules, reviews of what TV shows get right um, and wrong, TVs and movies. Uh, The podcast will help authors who write about mass destruction develop impactful ideas for their page-turning plots and provide tips for conducting research. Ooh, ah, sounds exciting. It will be. (laughs) I promise. All right, let's talk tech one more time. I have two headlines for this week. The first is... Beware the Jabberwocky, the AI monsters are coming, published on www.natashabajma.com on January 22. Wait, that's me. Yes, it is. My final tech update, and it's my own. I wrote this essay as part of a strategic multi-layer assessment, periodic publication entitled, AI, China, Russia, and the Global Order technological, political, and global and creative perspectives edited by Nicholas D. Wright and Mariah C. Yeager. I will link to the full paper in the show notes. Uh, congratulations to Nick and Mariah for getting the paper out. Um, really, really grateful to be part of it. So what did I talk about in my essay? So you can read about it in full on my website, but really what I'm, I'm looking at is how science fiction plays an important role in shaping our understanding of the implications of science and technology and helping us cope with things to come. And that is the reason why I'm starting up a new podcast, "Authors of Mass Destruction," I truly believe that one of the ways to raise awareness in the general public is to do so through pop culture. It's no surprise to me that Netflix has invested is plans to invest billions in science fiction in the next few years. Um, as as a society, we are being faced uh, with an onslaught of rapid technological change, and it's just hard to t- all take in sometimes. And I think there's going to be a real need. Uh, for people to explore those issues through story. So in my essay, I describe three AI monsters depicted in science fiction films as one day disrupting the global order and potentially destroying humanity. These are the automation monster, the super machine monster, and the data monster. So the automation monster is this idea that the machines are coming and it's going to replace all humans, or we're going to lose jobs, and we're not going to be able to work anymore. Scary scenario. Um, There's other aspects to the automation monster. um, You can read about it in my essay. The super machine monster, of course, is the Skynet Terminator scenario, where the machines just become smarter than us. They're all networked and they gang up together and destroy humanity. And then finally, the data monster. And this is really the one that my essay focuses on and why I, I wrote the essay. I I think we're distracted by the automation and super machine monsters, but but really the scariest one of all is the data monster. Um, It's stealthily assaulting our sense of truth, our right to privacy, and our freedoms. And if we don't start fixing this now, we're going to be facing all three AI monsters in the future. So you can read my essay uh, on my website. My second headline is related, AI can be sexist and racist, it's time to make it fair. This article was published on Nature.com on July 18, 2018, a few months old, but it's really important uh, article. If you listen to this podcast, you're aware of the gl- growing influence of machine learning algorithms in our lives. One of the more troubling issues about the excitement surrounding the power of algorithms for helping society is the lack of attention to data. Machine learning algorithms rely, a lot, rely on huge data sets to train them rather than rule-based programming. It's these huge data sets that help them create the relationships between the data. But what happens if the data is biased? So humans are biased and therefore the generate, the data that we generate either knowingly or unknowingly is going to be biased. If data scientists do not take special care to ensure that the data does not under or over represent certain groups, things go wrong with the algorithms they develop and I've talked about a number of those in this podcast one of them Amazon um, created an algorithm to help with its hiring but since they hire mostly men um, the algorithm downgraded all women applicants whoops um so data is not the only place where bias can occur algorithms are created by humans by data scientists as such they can inject bias into them as well Um, This is one of the most important issues of our time, and it's not well understood or even regulated by policymakers, so I will leave us on that note. Okay, let's turn to the final chapter of Bionic Bug. Last week, we left Lara in a bit of a sticky situation with a deadly syringe pressed to her neck. Let's find out what happens next. Chapter 42. My Hero. A loud bang sounded from the direction of the skiff door. Startled, Justine let go of Lara's head. Sensing her opportunity, Lara jabbed her elbow behind her, hitting Justine squarely in the ribs. Stunned by the blow, Justine fell backward for a moment, releasing Lara from the full weight of her body. Lara crawled forward, struggling to get free. But before she could get up off the floor, Justine grabbed her by her ponytail, pulling Lara back toward her. As the syringe needle grazed her neck, a gunshot rang out. The bullet zinged past Justine's body and entered the wall next to them. When Justine ducked and turned to look for the shooter, Lara went on the attack. Placing her weight on her left leg, she thrust her right leg backwards into Justine's stomach. The blow caught Justine by surprise. She tumbled backwards, dropping the syringe. Lara jumped to the floor and kicked the syringe across the room. She looked up to see Rob standing in the open doorway. An embarrassed federal agent stood next to him, holding the smoking gun. Rob, Lara said. His face was pale, but he smiled at her. The federal agent raced over to Justine, his gun drawn. Justine put her hands in the air in surrender. Rob jogged toward Lara, and she threw her arms around his neck, resting in his strong embrace. Are you hurt? Rob asked. Or maybe I should just ask Justine if she's hurt. You pretty much had that situation under control. Lara smirked, watching as the federal agent cuffed Justine. Not sure how I would have gotten the upper hand without the distraction, so thanks for that. Lara paused, touching her neck where the syringe needle grazed her skin. Did she get me? There's a small mark, Rob said. We should probably have you checked out by the medical team. They're already en route. How did you know? Lara asked. Honestly, I had no idea Justine was cybershop until Ashton's autopsy report came back this morning. He died of botulinum toxin poisoning. What? Lara shrieked in surprise. But I thought, when I learned the true cause of the death, I remembered it was Justine who rescued you from Fiddler's lab. She was the only one who had the opportunity to inject him with the toxin. She must have finished him off with one of her syringes. Why did the at- autopsy take so long? Rob glanced awkwardly down at his feet. Um, Agent Carter pissed off the medical examiner again, and there's a bit of a delay in getting the results. Lara shuddered, realizing her fate had hung in the balance of Carter's love life. Had they burst into the skiff one second later, she might have shared the same fate as Sully and Ashton. Rob continued. Then I realized you were coming out here to go over SIGINT reports involving Linda's communications, and I knew you were in grave danger. Well, that's an understatement. The door was locked with a key code. I couldn't get out. If you hadn't come for me, I'd be... Let's not talk about that, okay? Rob paused for a few minutes. Their gazes connected and neither looked away. Laura, I... I... Laura knew what was coming and she pressed her finger to his lips. Ever since he confessed her feelings for her, she tried to decipher her own heart. Deep down, Laura still loved Rob. The question had been whether he deserved another chance. But things finally clicked for her when he didn't listen to her theory about Fiddler in the marina. He never really trusted her instincts. Either he didn't want to, or he couldn't get past his own insecurities. As long as he felt inferior to her, he'd never fully appreciate her. I deserve more than that. Rob, I care about you too, but it took me a long time to get over what you did to me. And I've moved on. She practiced that response over and over. It wasn't a lie, but it also wasn't the whole truth. Lara didn't know if Rob could become the right man for her, but she wasn't going to wait to find out. She knew better than that. A blush crept up his neck and Rob stared down at his feet. Can we at least try to be friends? Lara smirked and lightly punched his arm. After saving my life, I think I can manage that. After the excitement at the NSA and nearly getting injected with deadly toxin, Lara spent most of the day at the FBI in debriefing sessions with Rob, Detective Sanchez, and officials from the NSA. Interpol apprehended Linda about the same time Lara had been tussling with Justine. The case against Justine and her sister was airtight. Stepanov was cleared of any involvement. Lara stood up on the stairs leading up to her townhouse. The railing felt cool under her hands and she leaned against it. Her body was heavy, aching all over as if she'd been hit by a semi-truck. Sleep had eluded her for weeks, and she couldn't remember ever feeling so exhausted. Looking up, she watched as the delivery drones buzzed ahead and obediently dropped off their packages to nearby customers. I did it. I actually found Sully's killer and brought her to justice. A tear dropped down her cheek, followed by another and another. She sat down on the stairs and put her face in her hands. Soon the tears flowed like a waterfall. She cried for Sully, the premature end of his life and the pain of his loss. She cried for letting Vic down, for the failure of her business and her uncertain future. And she cried for the loss of her home and for her lack of options. Eventually, the tears stopped. For over a month, she'd held almost everything inside, postponing her emotions until she had time for them, until it was safe to express them. Sometimes she marveled at her ability to compartmentalize her emotions. When she couldn't hold it in anymore, everything would come tumbling out of her at the same time either in rage or anguish. That's when she wished she didn't tuck everything away all the time. But that tendency acted as the keys to her strength, determination, and survival through many tragic experiences. Her parents' death, the loss of her unit in Afghanistan, nearly dying in a fire, and her ability to catch Sully's killer. None of it would have been possible if she handled her emotions differently. She laughed softly at herself and touched her puffy eyes with her fingertips. I must look like a crazy drunk. She dabbed her face dry with her sleeve. She pulled herself up, brushed off her pants. She walked into her townhouse and closed the door behind her. Home sweet home, at least for a few more days. Her landlord, Jake, would call the U.S. Marshal if he had to, and she wasn't about to wait for his next move. Vic had texted her earlier that day saying he'd already packed up most of the office into moving boxes while Maggie had made significant headway in packing up her apartment. Laura was not yet sure where she would end up. Since she didn't have the money to find a new place, she'd rented a storage unit to hold her belongings and would stay with Maggie until she could figure out things for Kingsley Investigations. After a long debate and many tears, Vic had given her his resignation. He had no choice but to look for a new job, to be able to afford rent on a new place. In the meantime, Rob planned to let him sleep on his couch. She could smell food cooking from the hallway. Her stomach growled angrily. It had been several days since she'd eaten a real meal, and Vic offered to cook an impromptu dinner to celebrate the end of the case and Justine's capture. When she walked into the office, Vic ran toward her, throwing his arms around her, squeezing her so hard she couldn't breathe. Uh, Vic. Lara, I'm so glad you're in one piece. When he pulled away, he grinned from ear to ear. Me too, Vic. Me too. Rob told me everything. I knew that woman was no good from the beginning. You must promise to never go off on your missions by yourself again, Vic said, shaking a finger at her and setting his jaw. I must insist. Time after time, you get into so much trouble without me. His face fell. I promise I will always have backup from now on, Lara said, knowing she would not be able to keep her word. She was pretty sure she wouldn't find a more reliable and loyal sidekick than Vic. Smells like a feast in here. What are you cooking? Your favorite curry recipe, Vic said, brightening up. And I even made you a mango lassie to help you with the spice. I do not understand why you like to torture your stomach. He pointed to the glass of yogurt blended with water and fresh mangoes sitting on the counter next to her. Curry was one of her all-time favorites. As a child, her mother's idea of spices for cooking had stopped at pepper and salt. Lara had not tried Indian curry until her late 20s. A few minutes after taking her first bite, Lara's face had flushed red and sweat beaded on her forehead. She fell in love immediately, a fan of Indian food. Vic said he would rather eat beef than consume another pot of curry for the rest of his life. The fact that he would only cook it for her was one of the reasons they were good friends. Thanks, Vic, she smiled. That was sweet of you. I'm starving. Perhaps we should wait for the others to arrive? Others? Laura asked, desperately searching for a reflective surface to get a view of her face. Yes, I invited Rob, Detective Sanchez, and the bug lady, I mean, Maggie, Lara sighed in disappointment as she glanced at the simmering pot. Her stomach growled. Don't worry, they told me I should feed you first, to avoid another hangry episode, he smirked. They'll get here when they can. Lara's face broke into a broad smile as Vic scooped her a healthy portion of curry onto a plate and pushed it toward her. Then he filled his own plate and pulled up a stool to the shiny New Grand Island. You're eating curry too? Lara smiled, stuffing a large spoonful in her mouth. But I thought... It reminds me of home, Vic grinned at her. She knew exactly what he meant. Lara took in the nearly restored townhouse for the last time. The boxes containing all that was left of Kingsley Investigation stood in the corner. Vic, you know you're my hero, right? Vic grimaced. But wasn't it Rob who saved you? Hardly. I shot Fiddler myself. You handled bit the Beatles. Rob burst through the door in the nick of time, but you're the one who un- unraveled most of the case. And you got this place back into shape at the same time. I don't know what I'm going to do without you. With this new hero status, do I get a raise? Vic tilted his head and raised his eyebrows. Uh, I thought you quit. And besides, haven't you heard? Kingsley Investigations is broke. Vic squinted at her. Um, Lara, have you checked the account lately? Which account? Lara asked. The one for shared expenses. Because I checked this morning, and the balance shows $100,000. 100K? The blood drained from Lara's face. Vic nodded. That can't be right. Show me, Lara demanded. Vic woke up his tablet next to him, logged into the bank account, and turned the screen around to face Lara. There it was. Lara couldn't believe her eyes. There was $100,000 sitting in her bank account. She knew who put it there. I have to return it. To whom? Vic asked, his eyes growing large. This money is from Fiddler for solving the case, for finding Cybershop. Would it be the first time you accepted money from an unsavory character? Vic asked. No, Lara said, feeling ashamed when she thought about some of her past clients. Then why is this any different? You got paid to solve a murder. Okay, so our client also happens to be a mad scientist who wreaked terror on innocent people, but focus on the transaction. I don't know. Lara wrung her hands. Boss, we've been working for weeks on the case, unpaid. We earned this money. Lara's wearable smartphone buzzed. When she looked at the screen on her wrist, she didn't recognize the number. Before picking up, she pulled the phone off her wrist, placed it on the counter between them and switched it to speaker mode. This is Lara. This is Wyatt Turner, the executor of Phil Sullivan's estate. I've been trying to get a hold of you for weeks and finally stumbled across your new number. I just wanted to call to make sure you received the deposit." Vic's eyes nearly popped out of his head as his jaw dropped open. Lara raised her eyebrows. "'Do you mean the 100K that mysteriously appeared in my account?' "'Yes. Upon his death, Mr. Sullivan instructed me to immediately transfer you $100,000 as my first action in closing his estate. In his will, he named you as the sole beneficiary and bequeathed all of his assets and his townhouse to you.' "'What?' Lara gaped at Vic as they both tried to absorb the information. The lawyer continued. Mr. Sullivan kept detailed records of all of his assets and had almost zero debt. Even so, it may take a bit longer for you to assume possession of the townhouse and receive the remainder of his money. I'm still waiting to hear from a few potential claims. He what? Lara sank back onto her stool and stared blankly at the screen. Sully left me everything. How much? Yes, ma'am. When he died, Mr. Sullivan was worth over $2 million, including the townhouse. He doesn't have any living family members and was very clear in his instructions to me. He said in a letter that he entrusted you with the proper use of his earthly possessions in order to carry out his mission to bring the bad guys to justice. Lara couldn't help a few tears from welling up. Ah, Thank you. This is unbelievable news. Anyway, I'm glad I finally found you because he left me a few other strange instructions. Mr. Sullivan restored all the key codes and passwords to the ones you used to install his systems. He thought that might be helpful in catching his killer in the event he didn't make it. He also wanted you to find a number of things he left hidden for you. Sully knew he was going to die? Lara and Vic exchanged glances. He left keys for you to find in the filing cabinet and toilet tank in his safe rooms. If you look, uh, thanks, but we already found both of those. What about the key in the kitchen drawer at Maggie's apartment? Found that one, too. And the newspaper clippings in the gun case, his burner phone at DARPA, and the box under his floorboards? Yep, yep, and yep, Lara said, sighing audibly. Vic rolled his eyes. This information would have been very helpful early on. Is that all? Yes, I'm afraid so. Anyway, I'll let you know when the deed to the townhouse is transferred to you. Thank you, Mr. Turner. Just doing my job, he said. I'll be in touch. Lara pressed the red button on her wearable smartphone and slid slid it back on her wrist. Well, I guess that resolves your money issues, Vic said, grinning at her. I guess so. Should I go rip up your resignation letter? Vic nodded, but he looked like he wanted to say something else. What? Lara asked. I thought you'd said you'd never get one of those, Vic said, pointing to the wearable smartphone. Lara smirked, remembering her little soapbox speech to Vic. Well, I'm probably not going to shatter this one, so I guess wearables do have some perks after all, Vic sat silently for a few minutes. So, what do you think our next case will be? His eyes gleamed with excitement. What about a bionic spider? Are you crazy? I sure hope not. Lara leveled her eyes at Vic. Please don't jinx us. I was kidding, Vic said, cringing a little. Too soon? Lara smirked. Yeah, Vic. Too soon. Epilogue. Pulling her puffy coat down snugly around her body, Lara traversed the curved pathway and landscaped terraces of Oak Hill Cemetery. The historic garden cemetery was located in the heart of Georgetown, along the border of Rock Creek Park, and only a few blocks from her old townhouse. In her coat pocket, Lara's gloved hand clasped Celia's keychain. The bitter wind blew hard against her face, causing involuntary tears to form in her eyes and her cheeks to sting. Even for late November, the temperatures in the region had fallen unusually low. Despite the inclement weather, the time was long overdue to pay respects to the only family she'd known since her childhood. Better late than never, right? Even though she had a legitimate excuse, Lara hadn't been able to forgive herself for missing Sally's funeral. She'd heard from Maggie it was quite the elaborate ceremony attended by the D.C. mayor herself the FBI director, and the DC police commissioner, and several other famous Washingtonians. Sully couldn't have cared less about these things, and she knew none of it would make up for her absence, especially not after what he'd done for her. He saved my bacon. Thanks to Sully's generosity, she finally had a place of her own to call home. Her first since her parents died when she was a child. And of course, Kingley investigations were survived to see another day of installing surveillance systems maybe even several more years if she managed her newfound wealth wisely. Since inheriting all of Sully's hard-won assets, Lara resolved to do better in the finance department. Ever since Sully's lawyer called, she couldn't shake the last words of, in his letter. They haunted her. When he first persuaded her to become a PI, Sully had wanted the two of them to be partners against crime. But Lara preferred straightforward surveillance jobs to facing the dark underworld of humanity. Now, Sully had entrusted her with carrying out his lifelong mission to bring the bad guys to justice. Outside of catching Sully's killer and stopping Fiddler's plot, she had no real, real experience solving crimes and dealing with hardened criminals. And yet, Laura felt she owed him, at the very least, to give it a try. Bring the bad guys to justice? What were you thinking, Sully? A gust of wind nearly blew her knitted cap off her head as she trudged up the hill, She tried to shield her face from the frigid air. Her watery gaze drifted up toward the peaceful chapel perched on the highest ridge of the cemetery. Designed by the famous architect James Renwick in 1850, the quaint one-story chapel stood on a steep hill nestled amongst old maple trees and thick shrubs. She admired its exquisite Gothic-styled structure, its high-pitched rooftop, the black granite stones accentuated by light-colored mortar, the red sandstone trim, and the ornate, circular, and arched windows carved from limestone. Oh, Sully, if only you could see this place, you'd love it. Who knows? Maybe you can see it. When she gazed into the gray sky above, several snowflakes landed on her face. For a brief moment, she smiled at the notion of Sully looking down on her from the heavens. Then she shuddered at the thought of him watching her every move. The warm feeling vanished, leaving a dull and bottomless ache. She still couldn't wrap her head around the gaping hole he'd left behind, she preferred not to think about it. Treading over the snow-dusted leaves, Lara turned sharp right on the narrow red brick road leading to the chapel. She glanced at the names and some gravestones. In recognition of Sully's many heroics in service of the nation's capital, D.C.'s mayor had pulled some strings to snag him a coveted grave site along Chapel Avenue next to many of Washington's notables. When she finally reached lot 921, sheltered by a large oak tree, Lara spotted Sully's shiny black granite gravestone in the far corner and strode toward it. A thin layer of snow lined the top of Sully's grave. As it came into full view, she read the words carved into the stone. Here lies Philip J. Sullivan, born in Baltimore, Maryland, 12 January 1993, died 19 October 2027. I am for truth, no matter who tells it. I am for justice no matter who is for or against Malcolm X. When she finished the words of the epitaph, the deep tone of his voice rang in her head. It was Sully's favorite quote. She could remember the first time he'd shared it with her. Sully valued truth and justice above all else and pursued both relentlessly. If they were alive, he'd use the famous quote to explain to Lara why he'd worked for a man like Fiddler, spent his final days on Earth seeking justice for the mad scientist, and clearing Anita's name, and why he'd expect Lara to do the same. In that moment, the reality of Sully's death came crashing down on Lara. A solitary tear rolled down her cheek as she stooped to lay the Star Wars Stormtrooper keychain at the foot of Sully's grave. Her thoughts turned to how he guided her after his death, putting the clues in her path. Oh, Sully, why didn't you tell me you were in trouble? Why didn't you let me help you? She didn't really need to ask the question. Lara knew why he'd kept her at a safe distance, to protect her from harm. She and Sully behaved the same way. Growing up as orphans, they learned to be self-sufficient and rarely asked for help from others, and definitely not if it would put a loved one in danger. Her eyes flooded with tears. Would things have gone differently if I'd agreed to be his partner? Could I have saved him from this terrible fate? As feelings of guilt washed over her, She shook her head in disagreement. No, if I'd gotten in the way, Justine would have killed me too. She almost did. The bone-chilling wind howled and blasted her without mercy as it passed through the branches of the tall trees. A flurry of snowflakes danced around her. With her fingers, she traced the letters in the word died, wiping off ice crystals. The finality of it pierced through her heart like a knife. When she thought of Sully's body resting beneath her feet, gone from her life forever. She took in too much air and nearly choked on her own breath. Lara sank to her knees, the wet snow soaking through her pants. He died. Sally is gone. A painful knot formed in her stomach and her chest tightened. Warm tears began rolling down her cheeks and mixing with melting snowflakes. The moisture pricked her skin in the wintry air. She braced her body against the cold, hard gravestone buried her head in her hands, and wept. Thanks for listening to the Bionic Bug Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Natasha Bajma. See you next week.